glad to be moderating this topic today. It's a great one. There's, you know, the word risk appears over 200 times in both the MDR and the IVDR. Um, so it's definitely a topic of interest and we're already starting to see some notified bodies come and ask questions about it. So we'll just we'll just start with the 2019 version and, and we'll ask riskiness Nikki to uh, outline some of those changes that we're seeing in the in the new standard. Sure, thank you. Um, so overall, the changes in 2019 were pretty minimal. Um, so the first thing I want to mention is the the definitions were updated. So there have been some new terms defined. Um, the standard defines state of the art. They define benefits. Um, they also defined reasonably foreseeable misuse. And then the definition of harm was updated. So that's one of the changes um, that you'll see. Another change is around um, residual risk evaluation and disclosure of residual risk to the users. So there's a lot more content in that regard. Um, the other area is they really expanded on production and post-production information. I'm sure that'll come up a few times today. Um, taking a proactive approach versus a reactive approach. So you'll want to plan for that in your risk management plan. Um, that continuous feedback loop being proactive, not reactive. That's the key there. Um, the other change is that they took a lot of the details and content and from the annexes and they moved it into the technical report 24971. I think we'll expand on that a little bit. Um, another change that you'll want to kind of be aware of is there was always a requirement to have a risk management policy, but they really emphasize that now and how important it is to establish that as a manufacturer and make sure that it's reviewed by top management. Um, and then another minor change is really they updated in Annex C the hazards, hazard situation, sequence of events examples. So if you use those charts in the past as a benchmark, you'll kind of want to revisit that section. Thanks, Nikki. Hey, Ron, do you want to talk a little bit about the technical report? Yes, yeah, sure. So, you know, the standard's been out for about a year now, and the technical report was published earlier this year, and it's a great addition. Um, you know, a lot of that information was in the uh, appendices of the previous uh, revision of the standard. Um, but, you know, when you look at the standard and the tech report, um, it's really probably for my money, you know, the most worker, you know, working, uh, work friendly. Kind of standard out there. It's user friendly, I should say. Um, it really gives you the roadmap for how to actually comply with the standard requirements. Unlike, you know, many ISO standards which are kind of vague and nebulous and kind of give you the general requirements, but then you kind of have to figure out how to do it. Um, and you know, for with this technical report especially, I think it really gives you the the uh, the foundation for how to put together your risk management plan and then even the more specific uh, plans for products and processes and so on. So. I think it's um, it's really beneficial and um, it really shouldn't scare anybody off um, because it really tells you how to comply. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that technical report is extremely useful and critical. If I can jump in for just a second, one of the things I think um, is, is most interesting from, from my personality perspective, which likes that 30,000 foot view um, of, of, of impact, one of the things I think is most interesting about the 2019 version is the number of um, shoulds from the previous version that have now been changed into shalls. Um, so I think there's about 78 shalls now in the 
and the new version. And by the way, the new version comes up with a definition for shall, should, may, can, must, which is consistent with what we've in, in the regulatory world have always known. Um, you know, the shalls are the absolute uh, uncrossable boundaries. The shoulds are the, the gray areas. The mays, the cans, we'll call those the loopholes. And then, of course, the must refer to external regulations. But I think most important here is to realize we now have a lot of shoulds or a lot of shalls that used to be shoulds. And I think it's worthy of note that um, just at, at least from, from my analysis, um, the, the shoulds that have changed into shalls were actually advice from old guidances um, and, and, and implications in the old standard. And so for those of us that have, uh, have always taken that approach, guidances are just that, they're guidances, they're not rules, we don't really have to follow them. Realize now that that old guidance have, has now become requirements. And so if, if we haven't updated our processes based on the guidance, well, we, we now have to now, and we might find those of us that have taken kind of that risky road of not implementing guidance, we, we might find ourselves with a little bit of, of work to do to update our process to the current standard. That's great. Thanks, Mike. Ed, since you were on the working group, is there, did we cover everything in that answer? Is there anything we missed? Pretty much. Um, it's quite a good summary. Um, I think, and this, this probably says something about my personality, but my favorite of the changes um, is probably the, the definition of a harm removed physical from it. So that that brings in a whole new concept for everyone, and and the introduction of the uh, an annex in the technical report on cybersecurity goes hand in hand with that. So it starts to think more around data security, loss of information, loss of data, etc., as well as other types of harm that aren't physical. Um, and the other piece I really like is that in the risk control section, there's a lot more guide. There's a lot more notes and examples actually in the standard. So not just in the, the informative technical report, but in the standard, there's more notes and there's more examples to give you clearer information around what risk control implementation and verification is and tie it into to the steps within the design control, the product realization process within 1345 and, and show you the, the synergies there in the interface. So those are the, the bits that I like the best. Um, and then the obvious one is the, um, they've removed the content deviations from the European version. So the, the change was there to address some of the issues with the, the EN version from 2012. So there will be no content deviations and it should just stand alone as, a, as, it, as it is now. It should, right? Should. <laughs> as opposed to it shall. It <laughs> okay, just checking on that word. Um, as we think about this, is there talk about harmonization or or is it required under the MDR and the IVDR? So is it required? No, not legally, it's not mandatory. <laughs> Should you use it? Yes. <laughs> right. Practically, because as soon as, especially if you have a note, if you require a notified body for your conformity assessment, the notified body will be auditing you and reviewing your risk files and your processes against 14971. So exactly as Mike said, like it, it's there, use it. Don't don't try to find a loophole or a shortcut because you'll still be assessed against it. Um, and, and practically plan, speaking, what are you going to use anyway? Exactly. What are you really going to use to yeah. comply with the MDR? No, because the, the GSPRs are written to align to 14971. So Very GSPR, specific. 
yeah, GSPR three, four, five, and I can't remember. I think it's three, four, five, and eight. They're written to tie in exactly with fourteen nine seven one in that process. Yep. So it is on the harmonization, the, the draft standardization, or sorry, harmonization request. Um, but the deadline for harmonization is May twenty twenty four. So anyone that's waiting to get the harmonized EN version. Yeah, I'd just start now. Don't wait for a harmonized version because you're just you know, you're going to be behind the curve so badly. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I know I've heard that some notified bodies are already starting to ask about it in their plans. Has anyone had some interactions with notified bodies yet that talks about it? Yeah, I have. I've seen that with with some of our device clients now. Um, in technical documentation and clinical evaluation reports. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been out for a year now and it's, you know, not only the state of the art standard, it's, as Mike said, it's pretty much the only option. So why you wouldn't implement it as soon as possible. And, you know, realistically, I mean, 12 months is really should be more than enough time to at least do a, a gap assessment to any new standard and then start to integrate it into your QMS and your business and then into the product and process specific, you know, areas. So, um, so at this point, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think any, but any notified body is, is going to be too happy to see 2012 still listed in, uh, as an applicable standard. Yeah, I know. And NSA, NSAI also put out a guidance or a white paper stating they really wanted to see full compliance with 2019. 12 months after the issuance of the standard. So that's pretty aggressive. Some of the other notified bodies we've seen asking for a plan of when you would implement, but saying that three-year plan is too long. So it is a little more aggressive timeline, I think, than we've seen in some other areas. Yeah, and I, and I think there's a reason for that that maybe we'll get into um, a little later um, down, uh, down the road in our, in our presentation. I don't want to give away the uh, the golden goose yet, but I, I think there's a theory behind why the notified bodies are treating it that way. Okay. Yeah, well, especially when you get into MDR, I mean, I think from a prioritization from the client and from the notified body, they're looking at a lot of the higher risk products first anyways, right? So yep. that's where you should start. So if you're taking a, a risk-based approach to implementing your risk standard, right? Um, yeah, you, you should be starting with those, uh, you know, highest risk products. And so get it get those ones up to date and then yeah if you have some other you know lower classification less risky type of uh, products and processes you know maybe maybe the plan will will help you you know stretch it out a little more but um, yeah certainly for the high-risk products they're they're looking for the new standard mm -hmm. yeah. so it seems like clients are struggling converting their risk files over and updating them even just to meet MDR let alone to a new standard any advice or anything you're seeing as they they work on those risk files? Um, I can take this one since I just went through this process. Um, I would say that my recommendation is to try and get as much in kind of one file, even though it says you don't have to contain everything in the file, but making sure that you have objective evidence for example, for the residual risk to the user, you know, maybe you want to add a tab or um, a document so you can show that to an auditor. Like, this is, these are the risks we disclose. These are the intended participants that we want to read this. This is where we put it in our labeling. Um, so I kind of uh, like to put it all in one area, whether that's an ex whatever tool you're using or Excel, 
and just kind of um, making sure that you have objective evidence for everything that you're planning for in your risk plan, I would say is a big um, area of emphasis. And then that post-market, making sure that you have objective evidence in your risk file that you're constantly showing that it's being updated and that it hasn't been sitting for you know three, four years and hasn't been touched, that would be bad. So that's a good point. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think we've seen notified bodies cite, we had one uh, file under MDR review where they cited the risk documents were th more than three years old. So they wanted to see an update before they would even look at the technical documentation. And I think it goes to your point, tying in all the post-market, being really quantitative and objective in the measures. Yeah, and I would, I would kind of echo what Nikki said a little bit too. Um, you know, remember the, the intent um, of the MDR is to have a proactive, as Nikki said in her first her first statement, proactive um, system going out and retrieving information. And so now all of your post-market uh, surveillance systems, um, your your uh, summaries, your CERs, all those really need to tie into your risk management now and be routinely updated. Uh, so this idea that you can have some negligent file just because maybe it's a less risky device or something like that, no, nobody's going to buy that. Uh, anymore. Yeah, and I would add that don't just look at complaints. You know, you need to start looking at other data sources and determining that frequency in the plan. So mm -hmm. don't wait for a complaint to come in and then update your risk file. Look at other data sources, whether it's, you know, a vulnerability, national vulnerability database for cybersecurity or, um, you know, post-market surveillance reports, uh, complaint review boards. Think about the other data sources. And I know 24971 is really good about giving examples of post-market data sources. So use that and kind of how you can manage and plan for those activities. Yeah, and just yeah, a kind of a know. shameless plug here, Kyle Outlaw um, from RQ and I also did a, a, a webinar a couple of months ago um, detailing out all of the different post-market data systems and, e and even pre-market systems from a design perspective. Uh, perspective that need to tie off with your risk management. And so if anybody wants to see all the different pieces um, of your QMS that need to touch risk management, go back to uh, to that webinar. I think it was called Complaints and Risk Management. Yeah, you know, Sorry the, to interrupt. The, oh, no, I mean, I, it got me to thinking, you know, the groundwork was really laid with the 1345-2016, where, you know, there was more emphasis on risk and not so much just the, the risk standard itself, but just applying it at an enterprise level, you know, across your QMS, across your business processes, you know, aligning those things, you know, and and it's, as an auditor, you know, we used to see clients, you know, kind of struggle to kind of shoehorn, you know, making sure they they reference the standard um, in a particular process, whether it was supplier controls or, you know, complaint handling. And, you know, if, if you show you're taking a risk-based approach, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to take something right out of the standard. It should be kind of the way you look at things and, and the way you, you know, prioritize uh, how you're dealing with uh, all the issues in your QMS. So it really, I think it really started way back then with the 2016 standard. Yeah, I agree. And just to uh, to tie back to the to Mike's discussion around shuds and shells, it's not a requirement to update your risk file continuously, but it's a requirement to regularly review it based on everything that everyone has just talked about. So great point. Just just because you update it every three years doesn't make it better. It's the review of the data and the, the proactive collection of the data and then the review of the data and the analysis and then what you do about that. That's the key thing. 
as long that as you document, when, as long as you document that review too, right? So exactly, don't just yes, right. sit there yeah. and say, "Yeah, we reviewed it and, and everything is fine." But yeah, <laughs> it's a lot easier that way. Not <laughs> <laughs> easier. But, I will say we have seen some audit findings of um, you didn't give enough information about why. So you classified something as a moderate risk or a high risk, but you didn't have enough meat behind it. And we're seeing that even under you know existing risk management before they even implement for the, the new version. Is there anything that maybe is missing from the guidance? And Ed, I'll direct this to you on the committee. Is there anything from the committee that maybe didn't make it into the documents that we should know about or or where there was controversy behind the scenes? Um, so, well, I mean, the obvious omission from the technical report is the, the annex on biological risks, but that went, moved into 10.903 part one, um, which forcing those links is, it, that has a normative reference to 14.971 for risk management. So anyone who's doing biological evaluations following that process has to follow 14.971, otherwise they can't comply with 10993 part one. So uh, going back to the do you need to use it question. Um, so that annex is no longer there. I, I, from from my involvement, I don't recall any big discussions around like specific subjects that didn't make it. Obviously, there was lots of debate about wording, um, whether it should be may or can, things like that. Um, um, Our favorite should and shall. <laughs> Yeah, and obviously there's there's lots of technical specialities in in the joint working group, and then and individually within national committees. So they all have their own pet projects and their interests. So they they want to beef up certain areas. So there was a lot of work going on around the cybersecurity part in the technical report, and there was a a lot of work to review and update the the IVD specific annex as well in the technical report. Okay, we're going to take a quick question from our audience. So it talks about the, I, the ISO standard includes several items that need to be included in the product intended use, such as use environment, intended users, intended condition of use. What would be the best place to capture all these items? The risk management plan, the regulatory plan, or is it okay however the company decides to approach that? Um, I can take this one and you guys feel free to chime in. Um, historically, I've put that in the risk management plan and you can reference other documentation so you're not repeating the information in multiple places because sometimes that can get you an audit finding if you have it in a regulatory strategy document and then you put it, you copy and paste the same statement in the plan and that changed at some point. So I usually recommend putting it in the risk plan and referencing where you keep that from a regulatory perspective. Um, so you, you can always put pointers in the plan to other documents if you need to. That would be my recommendation. Yeah, and, that, and, it, and it needs to align with the client-facing um, information like the IFU. So yeah, for me, I agree with Nikki. I mean, the it, it starts in, in the tech file and, and really in the risk management file. But then when you put, you know, warnings and hazards and, and all that other stuff in the IFU and, and even the intended purpose and so on, um, it really needs to align. Um, the terminology has to be you know, similar as close as possible because when you start collecting clinical data on the other end from from literature or from studies and, and so on, um, people describe things in all different ways. And so trying to align that with, with the original risk documentation is sometimes tricky and, and then trying to figure out, uh, you know, what, what the effect on the benefit risk ratio was. Thank you. Yeah, I think I... 
I'd probably agree previously I would have gone risk management plan that would be the first but I think over the last few years and I don't know I've had some sort of fundamental change and I think I would go for a use specification um because that, that's I mean I think 14971 does actually refer you to the use specification as part of the usability engineering standard um, and I just think it makes more sense to collate that information in one place under the banner of the use specification and then let it drive from there. Okay so you've heard it here there's multiple options <laughs> and all of those are okay. Um, so let's talk about some of the things that cause all kinds of internal debate on doing risk management. What does it mean to reduce risk as far as possible? Does that still exist in the 2019 version? Yes. Mike, you want to, uh, Ed? Yeah. Yeah, um, I think it's, I think there's like 16, 17 references to as far as possible in the GSPRs in both the MDR and the IVDR. So. Yes, as far as possible is there and it's not going away. And that's where it comes back to, to what Nikki was talking about in terms of the risk policy. That's the key link. And I would add that you really want to be able to demonstrate that you did reduce risk as far as possible in your risk analysis. Historically, I've added a column or a, some sort of documentation to support that that thought process was done and that they've implemented all risk controls as far as they could. Um, so I would recommend coming up with some sort of way to document that that you went through that process. Yeah, and I think what the notified bodies are looking for is anything quantitative. So your definition of as far as possible may be different from the next person. And so mm -hmm. um, how, did, how did you quantify that it really was as far as possible? Um, and so that's, I think, really becoming the basis of a lot of the findings is it was it was too subjective. It's easy to say, yeah, you know, the benefits outweigh the risk. But how did you really calculate that? Or, you know, what was the quantitative values that you looked at? So when we're looking at like, you know, clinical endpoints and, and outcome measures, um, more and more, you know, we, we need to, to quantify those um, in terms of, you know, rates and, and you know, number of, uh, you know, successful procedures and, and so on a related topic but one that I think also gets a lot of debate internally with companies is when you have to disclose the residual risk to the users as you do per the MDR what how's what's the practical expectation of that do you really have to you know disclose everything I Mike you want to so. start with how we're oh, talking go ahead, Mike. Oh. yeah go ahead go ahead Ron sorry yeah, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I think as we all understand, um, not every risk is, you know, apparent to the client, you know, to the end user, I should say. So there are things that are at the design or manufacturing level that can get um, resolved, you know, or mitigated, you know, before mm -hmm. the, the client is even, or the user is even aware. So um, I don't think it's practical to put everything in there that you've reduced from your FMEA, because you're going to add a lot of information to the end user that's just confusing and it doesn't make any sense to them. Yeah, and to add to that, there's even a section in the standard that talks about reviewing your warnings, making sure you don't have too many. Um, you don't want to overburden the end user with warnings and then they don't read them. So um, there is caution even in the standard about that. So keep that in mind as well. 
And I think that the conflict I, that I, I am guessing there will probably be lots of discussions and questions between manufacturers and notified bodies is that the MDR says any residual risk and the standard says significant. Um, and that is going to be interesting to see. I know that BSI as part of their um, rollout of the new standard, they had a, like a question and answer and they said they would accept either any or significant mm -hmm. as long as you wrote down what your approach was um but exactly as nikki said you don't and, and ron was saying about all of the risk you don't want to overburden and flood the the market with all that information because the users just won't you, you'll just you'll you'll just flood them with information and they won't pick out the salient points so therefore the, the purpose of it just becomes redundant Exactly, and you're talking about value, value add information, right? And and Ed, I love that you tap, you you touched on that word significant. I think it's important to note here too that there's really no definition of significant that exists right now. And so, what's advantageous, I think, for us as manufacturers, designers, whatever, um, and it's imperative that if you're going to take that significant route, you define significant in your own processes. And I would. I would advise that you try your best to align that definition with the use of that term in the MDR. Because the yeah. use, MDR uses significant in very specific terms. So I would I would align those, but I think there's a there's an opportunity for um, uh, an advantage for manufacturers here in coming up with their own definition of significant. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like when you know manufacturers have to decide what's a critical supplier versus, you know, a non-critical, exactly. what's, what's really the criteria. And so if you have a, a good basis for your definition and then you follow that, um, you know, the worst the notified body can do is say, well, we don't, maybe we're not crazy about your definition, but you're kind of applying it. Um, so you may have to tweak it a little bit, but if you just are kind of randomly uh, deciding what's significant or not without a basis, then that, that becomes a bigger problem. Yeah. And that, yeah, and I would add, uh, oh, sorry, Ed. Um, risk management policy, your risk acceptability criteria, keeping in mind your post-market reporting obligations would also play into that and in defining that and managing it um, across all your products, right? So. Yeah, we have a question from the audience that I think kind of ties into this. They want us to discuss the risk management policy and what will notified bodies expect to see in regards to the policy? Well, certainly, I think as Nikki just touched on, an acceptability, you've got to define your acceptability matrix, right? Yep, and you have to define, um, you know, who is going to be working on risk management and making sure that they're qualified. So qualification Competent. of personnel is another area. Um, who is your top management? So who's going to be reviewing the policy? How often? But really, the meat in there is your risk acceptability criteria, what your threshold is for risk, maybe even production, post-production, how you're going to be managing that as a business. Yeah, and that can really be in your in your plan. You know, when you think policy too, I think Nikki touched on this. You know, competence is a big thing, um, and it's not just competence and risk management anymore. You've got to have some people on your team that are competent in the device type that you're designing. Um, I've 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 seen notified bodies now coming back and asking not just somebody's trained to your procedures, but they're asking for their CV. They're looking for specific evidence that the people on your team have experience with the device type, and they're actually looking for that level of detail. Yeah, and so, you know, risk becomes a kind of a shared responsibility. So it's not, 
you know, in the past it was like, oh, risk management, that must be the, you know, design engineers. And so everything kind of get dumped on them. But yeah, there, there's so many aspects to it. There's the clinical end of it. So how is it used, you know, in the field? And, you know, do you have the clinical expertise? So yeah, confidence is important, but, you know, it, it may take, uh, you know, a committee to, to make some of the decisions and, and not yeah. just dumping it on one individual. Exactly. So yeah, to that point, I always say it's cross-functional. It should always be cross-functional. Exactly. You know, you need clinical at the table. You need your engineering team at the t table, quality, regulatory. So post-market, having a cross-functional team is super important. Yeah, and by the way, it just makes sense, right? When you have a cross-functional team, you've got different ideas challenging existing assumptions, and that's what you want to avoid concepts like groupthink, which in risk management are really, really dangerous. And the other aspect so another... for the policy, sorry, Nancy, the, oh, the other ahead. aspect for the policy is the, the how to define as far as possible and that approach of as far as possible. And the there is an annex within the technical report that does provide some guidance in, in terms of the use of international standards as part of risk controls. And I think, well, I think it should spark a debate about the um, the relative merits of harmonized standards and non-harmonized mm -hmm. standards and are all harmonized standards equal because in my opinion, no, they're not. And they, so standards provide certain information and in order to fulfill all the criteria for you to say, yes, I've gone as far as possible because I've met this standard, the standard has to tick a couple of boxes. And I'm not sure that's always evident to everybody using the standard that that is the case. So. So we have another uh, audience question. Can you discuss the risk benefit ratio more and what is expected to see with the MDR and the IVDR? We touched on risk benefit a little bit earlier, but I think, and I don't know, maybe Ron, if you could start from like a CER perspective, because I know you tackle risk benefit in there as well. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, um, you know, the when you're looking at clinical data, there needs to be, you know, some predefined, you know, clinical endpoints that are, are pertinent to that particular device. Um, and so, and having quantifiable, um, you know, data points or ranges to, to where it should be expected to perform, you know. So from the, you know, clinical evaluation side, you know, we always look at what's happening with the state of the art. So other similar devices or other treatments that are used for the same indication and try to, um, use that to kind of supplement what those predefined endpoints are. So, um, is is that are those predefined endpoints kind of in in reality? And so once you verify that, and then you can get to the point where you can compare your own device to what you know the state of the art is doing. But yeah, it really needs to be quantifiable, and um, it's it's kind of tricky to do because you know you you take an individual study that um, has its own endpoints, um, and then you have another study which looked at it a little differently. And so how do you compare, you know, from study to study? That That's that's really probably the most difficult part. But in general, you can take that information from the clinical data. And it's not just from studies. It could be from the PMS data as well, or PMCF studies. And so you have to kind of aggregate all that and then kind of assess it against the baseline and see how you're performing. And it's okay if, you know, one study says, well, you know, your device didn't perform as well as the other one. Um, I mean, I think if all your data said that, then there might be a problem, but there's always going to be outliers and in, in, in reasons for why, you know, outcomes were achieved, but trying to make sense of it all and telling that story of your device is really what we kind of do in the clinical evaluation end. Yeah. 
Anybody? So what I often see sometimes though, is that clinical evaluation risk benefit doesn't align necessarily with the risk. So for my risk people here, how do you tie that back? How do you make that align? Um, I added to the risk report to always ensure that when you finish your risk management activities that you check your CER, make sure there's no updates required to your CER based off the risk analysis activities that you've been having. So kind of that risk report areas where I've historically done that check back and make sure that there's a loop there. Okay. I would and usually try to make sure that the the, the risk assessment portion of it, whether that be a hazard analysis or combinations of various risk assessments and FMEAs and whatever else, other tools you've used, that the the output of that feeds into the final clinical evaluation. Don't run, they're all part of the same story. So don't try and treat them as distinct deliverables that you don't have to talk to one another. Mm. They all work together. Yeah, and one of the interesting things we see with all the clinical data is from studies and so on, You you, you you learn about new risks or maybe it's not even a risk or an adverse event as they may state it in the study. Um, and so how do you handle those? And you know what, what, what we try to work with clients is to say, well, um, you really need to go back and look at your risk management or we do it for them and decide, okay, is this, is this just an outlier? Is it like a one in a million? Um, do we really have to go through all the mitigation and as far as possible, or is it just something we're gonna keep an eye on? So that that's where it becomes, important to know what's significant and what's not and and so you, you don't ignore any of those things that come up but it doesn't mean you have to okay we found 10 new things now we have to update the the you know the fmea with 10 new line items it, it, that may not be necessary okay so we have one more audience question that we'll wrap it up with because we're running out of time but just a uh, quick question is do you consider the term risk to be aligned between 14.971 and the mdr is that term aligned between the two? I think, I, I think they kind of are, right? I mean, listen, for, for the longest time, the, the, the implications of risk have, have always been there, and they've been standard for, gosh, I don't know, since at least 2007. Um, I, I, think the, 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 I think the important thing here to note, though, is um, from the MDR perspective, there's only one standard that I know of, risk standard, that aligns with MDR, and that's the 2019 version. I think this gets back to, if I can kind of circle us back around a little bit, this gets back to why groups like notified bodies like BSI have come back and said that they're going to hold manufacturers' feet to the fire for 2019. Because it, it, it actually, when I first heard that, by the way, I was I was actually irritated when I read the BSI publication that said that they were going to immediately start issuing findings or holding people's feet to the fire for 2019. I'm like, what about what about grace? <laughs> You know, about this grace period. And and then I read the uh, European Official Journal publication, I think it's L90I, that outright stated that standards developed under the MDD for devices that are compliant with the MDD are not appropriate for use under the MDR. And it literally forces notified bodies now to realize, okay, hey, uh, it's, it's an official journal publication here that says that old MDD standards are, are not appropriate to use under MDR. So what's a notified body going to do? And then also in that same line of thought, if you really look at the MDR from a risk perspective, um, the, the old version just doesn't meet the requirements. It doesn't meet the requirements for being pro proactive. It doesn't re meet the requirements for production and post-production information. 
that are now, by the way, the 2019 version specifies the shall for specific information that you you have to retrieve from your production and post-production information, including supplier information, publicly available information, all of that aligns with the MDR. And so, yeah, I think the terms are consistent only from the 2019 version and the MDR. Okay. And I, I hope we have some di disagreeing it opinions here. We, we need to get in like an argument or something. No, the, the definitions <laughs> are pretty much the same. So. Yeah, the, the, the definition is the same. Any parting words from our panelists to the people that are out there looking at 500 risk files they need to get updated to this new standard? Deep breath. Outsource. It's been there. <laughs> Tough. <laughs> but I would say if you're documenting your decision making, that's super important that you have that, especially, um, you know, as people change as a company, knowing where that thought process was will be really important in audits to kind of help mm -hmm. explain how you got to where you got to. And I think I'd throw in there too, like, you know, like I said in the beginning, that if you've been following the guidances, if you've had a, a notified body that's scrutinized, that's scrutinized against your, your processes and held your feet to the fire in the past to the implications of 14971, you're probably not in too bad a shape. If you've been one of the manufacturers that have taken the, the route that I've seen before saying, ah, it's just guidance, we don't need to do anything with it, you're probably going to have a lot to work to do. Uh, you're probably going to have a lot of work to do. Um, and you should consider, this is a shameless plug, by the way, you should consider groups like R&Q to come in um, and help you out. 